Smashing the Plateau. I'm David Schreiner-Kahn with Going Solo. In this show, we discuss building your own successful business after a late career job loss. You're so courageous. How did it feel? What made you do it? As you know, being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart, but the rewards can be immense. Today on episode 93 of Going Solo, I'm speaking with the Chief Humanity Officer of Day One Ready, Jennifer Fondreve. Jennifer discovered a gap in the marketplace while working on her book. It turned into a successful consultancy. Stay with us to hear all the details. If you'd like to share your story on Going Solo, please get in touch with me at smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Jennifer Fondreve. Jennifer is the founder and chief humanity officer of Day One Ready, a consultancy that advises forward-thinking business leaders, owners, and C-suite executives on the people challenges of business transitions, particularly mergers and acquisitions. As a Fortune 500 C-suite survivor of three separate multi-billion dollar acquisitions, Jennifer authored the Satirical Survivor's Handbook, Now What?, a survivor's guide for thriving through mergers and acquisitions, which became a number one new release in six categories on Amazon when launched. She shares her expertise as a contributor to Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Inc., Forbes, and Thrive Global. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. And you know, you are the first host who has emphasized appropriately, now what? Which is the question you typically ask right? When you're going through business transition and someone comes into your office and you can just see in their eyes, something's changed again. And your first thought is now what? So thank you. You, you appropriately emphasize that. Well, in your bio, it is written in all caps. (laughs) I know, but not everyone pays attention to that. Okay. Thank you. Good to know. So Jennifer, you have a long history as a high level employee, clearly experiencing the roller coaster of corporate life. That's what your book is all about. What did it feel like? The corporate life part or surviving it? <laughs> All of it. The, the roller coaster, corporate life, surviving it. I know mergers and acquisitions have a terrible reputation that, you know, the data show that most of them fail. The vast majority fail. I personally have witnessed some. I was um, working for a related organization to a, a very significant and expensive merger that took place in the not-for-profit sector about, gosh, it's probably like 20 years ago. And I think literally there was there was an attempt to get this to work for a period of about 10 years. And the fallout was just dreadful. Uh, it, was, it was such a waste of contributors' dollars because it was the not-for-profit sector. You know, seeing money wasted in any case, whether it's, you know, the not-for-profit sector or the private sector or the, you know, public corporate sector is, is a shame. I know we can do better. You've seen this from the inside. I would just love to start off by hearing a little bit about your experiences. And and what's fascinating is it starts with exactly what you just said. I knew we could do better. Yeah. Uh, I actually... I loved my corporate life, corporate career, if you will. I love managing teams. I had the benefit of working abroad, lived in Europe for three years and built a go-to-market strategy there, got promoted to do that then globally. You know, I feel like I'd had my dream job early in my career. And that company was Navtech, Navigation Technologies, uh, creating digital maps of the world. 
and we were acquired by Nokia in 2008 for $9 billion. And I would say that was the first, you, you, you shared it in my bio, the first of three multi-billion dollar acquisitions that I, that I went through. And it was by the third acquisition that I thought to myself, there has just got to be a better way to do M&A, a way in which people can contribute their value faster, that they have an understanding of what the vision is and their role in it. And I saw too many times really good, talented people lose their way. They lost faith in themselves and their abilities because suddenly the metrics for success changed. And nobody really explained why they changed and what the new direction was in a way that, that you know, so many people in the organization just couldn't see how they could contribute. And, and frankly, it was by that third acquisition as I was, you know, leading my next team that I had several executives around me say, you should really write a book about this. You seem to have a handle on, on how to navigate it and what to do. More people would benefit if they just had line of sight on what to expect. And so, David, your story is not unusual. I, I can't tell you how many stories I had heard um, from people who had gone through a merger and acquisition and had had a painful experience. And so that really was the motivation um, to write my book. And in writing the book, I interviewed CEOs, CFOs, uh, HR leaders, entrepreneurs, private equity, to make sure that it wasn't just based on my experience, but that it was informed by both you know, survivors and practitioners uh, alike uh, in order to help people mitigate some of what I saw were the, the challenges of mergers and acquisition that revolved around just you know, the unknowns, the people challenges, as, uh, as I like to call them. Because that's where all the difficulties are. Right. But it, what's interesting, and, and this is where you, know, you can't predict human nature, uh, and I, I certainly I don't cast it as, you know, you should have expected this, but I do think you can expect people challenges. And the, the issue is, because people have said to me, well, you know, 70 to 90% failure rate, you know, M&A is just bad. And I don't, I don't necessarily share the same opinion. I think mergers and acquisitions can be considered a viable growth strategy, but you need to consider what the reaction of the workforce is going to be on both sides, both acquirer and acquiree. And David, I'd love to hear your experience, but the reality is even the acquirer who can tend to be the more dominant, the fact is they did the acquisition because they couldn't go it alone. There's something within that acquired company that they needed in order to survive as well. So both sides suffer in different ways. And so really my, my goal in writing a survivor's handbook, a satirical one at that, was to help people have line of sight and be able to better anticipate the emotional journey that they'll go on, how their colleagues might change, how new bosses can come into play in a, in a merger and acquisition and how to figure out how to work with them quickly. Um, all of that's what I bring to, uh, to the book and to my experience. So what, what are some of the strategies that company leaders should deploy in order to help the mergers, a merger or an acquisition to be more successful? So one of the things that I I do with senior leaders when I've had the benefit of being brought in early, and this is right in the due diligence 
letter of intent period of the of the deal. And there, oftentimes, and David, you've probably experienced this yourself, people think they're aligned and they're all on the same page moving forward. But oftentimes you don't realize until you're talking out loud and when you're asking people, okay, is everyone agreed on, on both the decision and the expectation and why we're doing this? And what I do is I like to call it a, a pre-mortem. It's having both executives act as though they've made the decision and then articulate all the ways that the decision could go wrong. Whether it's, uh, and it's kind of like a reverse SWOT, right? What are the strengths that we're counting on? What happens if those go away? What if the weaknesses that we've anticipated actually play out? And it could be, you know, a competitor moves faster launching a product. The government launches a policy that could undermine a critical piece of why you're doing this deal in the first place. And by doing that scenario playing, I can't tell you how many times executives realize, ah, we're not necessarily all on the same page. We don't have a common view on desired future state. And by doing the act of, of literally scenario planning, it allows them to see that. And, and oftentimes what comes up is, uh, you know, potential people challenges. What can happen? And I use stories. I, I share I share stories of what I've seen executives do, both good and bad, to help illuminate them on things that they likely aren't thinking about when they're just focused on getting the deal done. Mm. And what are some of the outcomes when companies follow the strategies that you've laid out? I think they're more, it's, it's kind of a little bit of what you highlighted at the beginning. I, by doing it in a pre-mortem, I'll use that exercise example, it allows them to see that people go through uh, an emotional reaction. And you, you highlighted it a bit at the beginning when you shared your own story. We all tend to, when we're in a job, we have a, fu a future that we envision for ourselves. And a merger or an acquisition can suddenly, overnight, completely upset the future version of ourselves that we saw, right? Maybe you think you're going to get a promotion. Maybe you think if you continue to move in and this way forward, your boss will elevate you to a more responsible role. And all of that can, can flip upside down overnight. And that can be very unsettling for people. And so when you start to bring to life how a workforce is going to react to this and some of the emotional um, reactions that they'll have, it really helps executives who sometimes have been working on this deal for months and their whole focus has been on just getting the deal done. So what I try and do in, in that initial exercise is highlight, here's what to anticipate. Your workforce will likely go through stages of grief. You know, in, in academic terms, it's usually called the S-curve or the change curve. I'm, I'm more blatant about it. I say your workforce will grieve, particularly what tends to happen is for the company that's acquired because the version of the future that they had in mind no longer will be because now they've been acquired and they're going through a whole new learning curve. And so my goal in those, in those early exercises and upfront work with executives is to help them not only see that and understand that, but be armed with, okay, and here's how you help your workforce get through those stages of grief and how you handle, how you handle the changes in people that you see around you in order to give the deal the, the greatest chance for success. I'd love to hear a little bit about the actual experience of grief on the employee's level 
How do you see that playing out? Well, if you're if you're familiar with Elizabeth Kubler Ross, uh, it really it's it's her. Frankly, I thought she did an amazing job of articulating. Originally, you know, she articulated the stages of grief as it applied to someone who just finds out that they are they are going to die, right? It's terminal patients who realize they have a, a terminal illness. But then that that study that she did transcended, and it actually applied equally to the caregivers, people who were going to lose that loved one. And it starts with denial. You know, that's the first stage, denying that either you're you're going to die or that you're going to lose this person. And then the, the next stages that you go through are anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And, and it's interesting, and I give complete credit. A friend of mine, his mother was a grief counselor, and I was talking to her about just the feelings that I was having in, in this, you know, acquisition, my very first acquisition experience. And she said that you have all the signs of of grief. You are mourning the future that won't be. And that's what happens to your workforce frequently, right? You know, and I, I, in interviewing 60 executives, consistently each one said, yeah, now that you describe it that way, I do feel that that's what our workforce was going through. Because everyone is Again, they're, they're fixated in how they saw the future and where they saw their career going, and now there's a lot that's called into question, and they're not sure what the strategy is or the role that they can play in helping contribute to that strategy. And so what I try and do both in my consulting and in the speaking that I do and definitely in the book is help people, one, understand they are stages, that you might be feeling depressed and angry but you need to move towards acceptance. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean you have to be happy with the decision that was made. You just have to accept that it has happened. And the the sooner you can get to acceptance, the better you can see the opportunities and the role that you can potentially play in the new vision. And the new vision being whatever, you know, your company plus this other company are trying to create together. And really, that's the key because we all spend some time in denial. You know, we all think, no, 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 this is this isn't going to work. This is going to go away. You know, I've seen variations of that at all levels, from executives to frontline leaders. And so, it's really a, a matter of of navigating that to get to acceptance, so you can see what your role is, your your the future contributions that you can make. How much does employees' fear of losing their job play into some of these feelings and what ends up causing some Oh, a disru- ton. Yeah, I was going to say, because one of yeah. the things I, I've seen is that, like, if you take a typical acquisition, there's, you know, the both the acquirer and the acquiree, employees on both sides, fear that they're going to lose their job. Whether it's oh, founded absolutely. or whether the, yeah. right, whether there's any reality yeah. to it or not, and so what happens is they also, besides just the fear, they spend a lot of time worrying about it, discussing it, rather than doing productive work. Oh yeah, and then listen. I mean, let's. I want to be upfront. I say this now. I wrote a book about it, but it was probably seven years of working through this. I was terrible, and the very first acquisition experience that I had now. You know, I was an executive. I got the retention package. Very fortunate in that regard. But equally, I spent a lot of my energy, exactly as you pointed out, trying to highlight past achievements. 
you know, um, Nokia was B2C, we were B2B, and I was confident that if I just presented in a, in a PowerPoint, you know, here are all the ways that we've done great work for our clients. But the thing that you have to remember in a merger and an acquisition, the company that's acquired you or merged with you, they're looking to not to what you did in the past, but how you can contribute to the future. And so you can, you can spend so much time, I don't want to say wasting energy because it's a natural inclination. You're proud of those achievements, but you've got to pivot and, and look to, okay, what are we trying to achieve in the future? Why did they acquire us? Getting smart about that. And what of my skill set can contribute to that? Instead of, well, these guys are just idiots. They don't understand how we did things, why we were so great. You know, I definitely had that. Well, you spent $9 billion on us. Clearly, you thought we were valuable. Why are you trying to tell us what to do? And so there's a lot of that dynamic. And that's why I wrote frankly, about the stages of grief and the personalities that can emerge, because I wanted to help people avoid some of the things that, you know, I know I was even guilty of, because it just, the faster you can contribute your unique skills to where the company is going, the, the greater chance you have of really seeing where the opportunities are for you to, to be a key player. But it's, it's, to your point, it's hard at the beginning because you're worried about your job, so that's why I highlight, be clear in what your unique value is. What are your unique contributions? And look to how those can contribute to the future. Don't waste your energy trying to prove how valuable you are. Show how valuable you are. Demonstrate your skills in helping the company move forward. Um, well said. Jennifer, how have your experiences going through three separate multi-billion dollar acquisitions and your work on your book led to what you're doing now? Everything. There's a part of me sometimes that's still astonished that I'm doing it. I never planned to be doing what I'm doing now, but by that third acquisition, and, and again, it's what I, I shared at the beginning, I saw too many good people lose their way. I knew that they had great skills and great talent, but because they got lost, you know, oftentimes they'd be let go. And I knew what their skills were, but they they lost faith in themselves. And so I, I felt that if I could, if I could do a better job of articulating and bringing to life what that experience would be, and it's while I was interviewing CEOs and CFOs in particular for the book, uh, and HR leaders as well, I would say they consistently all would say, well, what are you doing besides the book? And at first I would joke, well, do you know how hard it is to write a book? Like, I just was thinking, you know, let me just get the book done. But it was a fair point. I remember one HR leader in particular said, you're talking about the part of mergers and acquisitions that no one else talks about. And yet it is what contributes to the failure rate. And the more we talk about that, the more we give voice to this part of mergers and acquisitions the more open people will be and the more the people will feel like they aren't going crazy. That's the other thing I should say. You know, the stages of grief when you're going through that, when you feel depressed, you're trying to figure out, why do I feel so depressed, right? This is just a company. What's the big deal? But if you've devoted so much of your energy and time to this company and you were really proud of what you've achieved and now suddenly all of that's brought into question, it can be really hard. And so that's, it was that experiencing and, and seeing what happened to other people that was the key motivation for what I do now. But if you'd even asked me five years ago, I, I thought I was just going to be a CMO in another role. But the, the book 
And the reaction to the book kind of took on a life of its own. And I felt that the legacy I wanted to leave, I, I felt I had a better job of leaving a legacy I would be really proud of if I pursued this rather than just being another, and no, no offense, right? I don't want to say being a CMO, there's that there's anything wrong with that. That was my original goal. But now that I'm doing this, I'm, I'm so proud that I am. And it's it's been worth it. Having enough people tell me how much the book meant to them and how much it helped them uh, makes it all worth it. Right. Be- becoming a CMO is probably the more linear path. Yet when you keep hearing about a market need that is also in synthesis with something that you're particularly passionate about and where you have the experience and the skills to contribute to solving a major problem, then why not pursue the opportunity? And you, you've you articulated it really well, David, and I would say, because I've been asked a lot uh, most recently, particularly people who are in corporate, have asked me like, God, you're so courageous. I can't believe you. <laughs> what did it, how did it feel? What made you do it? And as you know, being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart, going out on your own, but the rewards can be immense. Yet you need to do the due diligence. What what of your knowledge of your skill set, where do you see a gap in the marketplace that you can serve, that you can, you can either bring your expertise to or that you can help other companies navigate that that upfront work is critical. But once you've identified that, to your point, if you're passionate about it, that, that can make you a, a force for good. Uh, and that's really how I have felt uh, with the path that I'm on now. Um, even though I said, jokingly, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm thankful for the time I spent up front to say, okay, this this is an opportunity, but I need to give 110% to it if I hope for it to be successful. Because, you know, I'm talking about, again, I'm talking about mergers and acquisitions in a way that typically isn't what's discussed. Um, but also what you've identified as the process to create a business that is going to be successful is really important that so many consultants and coaches miss when they're trying to go intentionally from a corporate career to a consulting or coaching career is not taking the time to really identify the gap in the marketplace that fits their skill set and their personal interest. Right. And you know it's interesting. I should highlight at the beginning I did have a number of people advise me and say, one, you know, you're crazy. Like this, you know, <laughs> who's, who's going to talk about this in mergers and acquisitions, right? The focus of the discussion is typically on the deal. And then after that, they said, well, you should really just talk about corporate change. That's a big topic. And I thought, John Cotter, you know, he's the change leadership guru. I said, I'm not going to compete with the likes of him. I want to speak to my experience and, and where I saw challenges in the execution uh, and integration during mergers and acquisitions. Now, I will tell you, it can be a much longer runway if you've chosen such a narrow niche um, that it takes people a while to get educated and understand what you do and what you bring to it. But I can say from my experience, picking a niche and then just drilling down on it and making sure that everything you say and do is always serving that audience allows you to to be known in that space. 
Because you can get a lot of advice up front. And and to your point, David, you really need to stick with what your experience is, where you feel your expertise will be most valued. Because if you try and be, you know, something for everyone, it's less fulfilling. And typically it's, it's much harder to have success that way. Oh, it's much, much harder. And there will always be naysayers. Yes. Sometimes the fact that there are so many naysayers is giving you a clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you talk about this uh, uh, a lot with entrepreneurs. I, I mean, oftentimes naysayers, they don't intend to be a naysayer, but it's almost uh, what I have found is oftentimes it's people who wish they were doing what you're doing, but it takes a lot of courage it does. And so... And perseverance. Right. Right? Because as you said, it, there is a long runway. Yes. It's not like you get another job and all of a sudden you have a new paycheck. Right. doesn't work that way when you're building your own consultancy. Right. No. And and it's, it's really, I, I remember, still remember the conversation I had at the very beginning when I was just researching for the book. And a good friend of mine said to me, so when are you going to launch your consultancy? I said, I can't, I can't be a consultant. I kind of make fun of consultants in my book, right? Because I had, I had worked with large corporation type consultants. And his comment to me was, well, then just be a good consultant. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, he's got a point. But it's kind of like you can't, you can't base your decisions on unnecessarily a frame of reference for what you see out there. That's part of identifying where the gap is and the opportunities are. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Maybe that role exists, but the way I've experienced that role as done by others isn't as good. And I think I bring a unique expertise. In my case, it was a survivor's point of view. I'd been on all sides. I'd been acquirer. I had been acquiree. I'd been acquired by a private equity firm. So I saw... I saw the potential of what the deal was intended to do, and and I, I experienced firsthand why some of the people challenges had undermined it. And, and I thought, I can bring that survivor perspective to this dialogue in the hopes of, of uh, having greater success uh, in the deal. So, you know, I think it's equally important to, because the role may exist, but you might just think, well, it's already out there. How am I going to do it any better than someone else? Well, what's your unique take on it? What what can you bring to it that may be different and that can actually help people? Uh, and that's really the impetus for me of, of why I, I decided to pursue a consultancy. Jennifer, this has been such a great discussion about your experiences, your work, your book. Congratulations on everything that you've done uh, and launching your consultancy. If someone wants to get a copy of your book or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go? So first I'd say definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm a very active LinkedIn contributor. So Jennifer J. Fondrevet. Uh, there's only one of me, thankfully. Uh, the other way is through my website, jenniferjfondrevet.com. You'll see both the the speaking, the consulting, and information about my book. Uh, and one of the things that I would highlight, because I always encourage people to take the personality quiz on my website. I use the 10 personalities that I highlight in my book, the 10 personalities that emerge during a merger and acquisition, and you can take the quiz to find out who you might be working with in your business transition or who you may have become. 
And uh, through the quiz, you'll get a sample chapter of one of the personalities. So those are really the two main ways for my book. You can find my book on Amazon.com. It's Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. And I'm thankful to say, because the audiobook just came out a few weeks back, that it's now available in audiobook as well. Great. And we'll include all those links in the show notes. Super. I am always, I'm thankful for that because I've got a tricky last name. So appreciate you including that. It makes it a lot easier. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Going Solo and share your insights. My guest today has been Chief Humanity Officer of Day One Ready, Jennifer Fondreve. Thank you again, Jennifer, for joining us. Thank you again for having me. When you visit the Going Solo website, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned how to listen for important clues about gaps in the marketplace and much more. If you'd like to share your story on Going Solo, please get in touch with me at smashingtheplateau.com. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode. Thank you.